Bibles, if you would, turn to Luke chapter 15. We're going to kind of conclude today at, uh, uh, from this chapter. We've spent about four weeks in it. And uh, uh, the, the amazing thing is, is the more time I spend in it, the more time I could spend on it in Sunday because it is just, it is so full. It's a short story, uh, but books have been written about it. And I shared some of those books, The Prodigal God by Tim Keller and uh, 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 Catholic priest uh, Henry Newen who wrote a book called uh, The Return of the Prodigal, and um, just some resources that I've helped that have really shaped my thinking, some of the talks, and uh, just powerful stuff that have challenged me personally. And uh, I love this story, and I love the part that we're going to talk about today. You see the picture there on your cover, and um, the Dutch priest, Henry Newman, was so taken by this picture by Rembrandt uh, of, the, of Rembrandt's prodigal that he actually wrote a short book called The Return of the Prodigal on it. And uh, he looked at the role of the father and the sons in the parable. And he had done some study and research and read some biographies on Rembrandt. And he wrote this. He said, Rembrandt as much as, is as much the elder son of the parable as he is the younger son. When during the last years of his life, he painted both sons in The Return of the Prodigal Son painting, he had lived a life in which neither the lostness of the younger son nor the lostness of the older son was alien to him. And he noted this, both needed healing and forgiveness. Both needed to come home. Both needed the embrace of a loving and forgiving father. And in the painting, you'll see in the picture, it's a little hard probably on your program, but the, the son returns home in this wretched state because he'd, live a, he'd, he'd lived a wasted life. That's literally what the word prodigal means, is wasted. He'd wasted the inheritance that he had demanded from his father. He'd fallen into poverty and despair. And in this picture, you see him kneeling before his father in repentance, wishing, hoping, asking for a renewed place in the family. And you see this powerful picture where the father receives him with this very tender gesture. And as one writer said, he says his hand seems to suggest the mothering and fathering both at once. The left hand appears larger and more masculine set on the son's shoulder, while the right hand is softer and more receptive in gesture. And ultimately, what all of this is representing, he said, was a homecoming. If you look at Luke chapter 15, the inspiration for Rembrandt's painting Remember, we've talked about it, that Jesus is really the verbs in the first two verses tell us where this whole story is going. And he says, now the tax collector, the tax collectors and sinners, they were put together, were all gathering around him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. So you've got Jesus teaching, you've got the tax collectors and sinners, the bad people of the day listening, but you have the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, muttering. And Jesus tells a couple of stories to kind of move his way into the really the key story that really focuses on God himself. And it starts in verse 11. And it says, and Jesus continued one sentence. There was a man who had two sons. Now the younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long ago after that, the, not long after that, there's a season of time. We'll note that in a few minutes. Uh, but the younger son got together all that he had. He set off for a distant land, and there he squandered his wealth 
in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country that sent him to the fields to feed pigs. Not exactly the most kosher thing for a Jewish boy to be involved in. But he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. In case you're wondering, uh, for those of us who are, you know, are kind of health-oriented, those pods there probably would have been carob roots or carob type of eating. So they were feeding those pigs some pretty healthy stuff. And uh, so verse 17, when he, came to the, when he came to his senses, it's almost as if there was these moments of insanity. And when people in rebellion, you know, you do some pretty insane stuff, don't you? But it says when he came to his senses, when there began to be this right thinking, he said, how many of my father's higher men have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. So I'm going to set out and go back to my father. And I'm going to say to my father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. He's rehearsing this speech. It's basically a speech of repentance that acknowledges his wrong, his rebellion. But while he was still a long way off, this is one of the greatest scriptures in scripture, friends. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Notice the verbiage there in the verbs. He saw, he ran, he threw his arms around him. He had compassion. The son began to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, he interrupts him and he says, Quick, bring me the robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's have a feast. Let's celebrate for the son of mine was dead. Now he's alive again. He was lost, now he's found. So they begin to celebrate. Well, meanwhile... The older son was in the field. We talked about this is the passage we looked at last week that is really important for the church, not just this church, but the church. And if you've been following Jesus for very long, this is really an important passage. And I would encourage you maybe to go listen to it if you weren't here last week. When he came near the house, he heard the music dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. He says, your brother has come home, he replied. And your, the father has killed the fatted calf and, and brought, because the brother's been brought back safe and sound the older brother became indignant and angry and he refused to go in so his father went out and pleaded with him but he answered his father look all these years man i've been slaving for you i've 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 never disobeyed any of your orders that you gave me even a young goat so i could you never even gave me a young goat so that i could celebrate with my friends but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home you killed a fatted calf and then this father says, my son, my son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. We had to be glad because this brother of yours was dead. Now he's alive again. He was lost. Now he's found. See, that's the heart of the church because that's the heart of the father. That we celebrate people coming home, celebrate coming people coming to Jesus. Well, Jesus' story of this prodigal, the part we're going to look at today, really is the father. He says there's this man that had two sons, and Jesus drives home this point about each son as he speaks 
about the prodigal. He's really telling the sinners and the tax collectors and the lost people there's hope. And then as he's talking about the elder brother with the religious leaders, he's saying, that's you. You can't celebrate. You're on the outside. There's no joy in your life. Your religion is more important than seeing lost people come to me. But then in the last part in this big story, he brings the focus back on the father who loved these two boys from the moment they were born. He was wise. He was patient. While he was firm, he was gentle. And he was devoted to them. But what makes the story filled with so much pathos and emotion is that both of these boys broke their father's heart in different ways. So Jesus is telling this to people who've also broken God's heart. He tells this to people today that have broken God's heart, to continue to break God's heart. I don't know about you, but I've, I've always found in counseling and since I've been in ministry that, that I found birth order dynamics interesting. Have you ever noticed those? They're, they're really, they're, they're, there's a lot of real good truth to them. And even in this story, as Jesus tells it, you begin to see some of the psychology is really true and in line. For instance, with a younger child, we have a younger and an older child in this story. The younger child is often the free spirit, man. They're the party waiting to happen. They want to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. You know, I mean, they, they just want to be seen and known and be in the limelight and get most of the attention. They like to kind of build a charm about them that, that is kind of winsome and appeals to people. Uh, a lot of times the younger can be spoiled. They're pretty good at getting what they want. You know, I'm the baby. You've got to love me. You've got to serve me. And it's interesting how that just kind of happens in family dynamics. Well, then you see the firstborn, the older son. What's the kind of the, the file on them? Well, they follow the rules for the most part. They toe the mark. They color inside the lines. You know, a lot of times the older ones, they make their bed. They clean their room. They learn to do without having to be told all the time. They're a perfectionist. They're often an achiever. When they were little, they would protect their younger brother one minute, and then soon after that, they'd begin to be the big boss and tell them what to do and where to go and how to do it. And we see some of those same dynamics begin to be played out here because one day, this younger son totally shocks the father, shocks the family, and he basically comes to him and he says, old man, I'm tired of waiting for you to die. I want goods from you, but I don't want a relationship with you. Hand it over. Could there be any harsher words for a father to hear? I want your stuff, but I really don't want relationship with you. In this culture, there's not a chance in the world this father would have to do it. But again, Jesus is drawing his picture of who God is. And so this father begins to take care of and liquidate his assets. Because Jesus continues the story, and he says, not many days after that, the son gathered all that he had. See, this is a family that's got some resources. They've got slaves, they've got fields, they've got animals. And this father chooses. He makes a decision to say, don't have to do this, but I'm going to give him the third of everything that I have. And he begins to liquidate his assets. He begins to sell the possessions so that he could give his inheritance early to this rebellious son. Now you have to, let, let me just kind of transport you back about 2,000 years because this community, they would have been close. They would have been in a village and everybody would have quickly begun to see 
What's going on? What's Levi doing? What's that father doing? He's selling. He's, he's liquidating assets. And pretty soon there would have been talk of what this younger brother is doing. This is a big deal as this son does this to his father. Ken Bailey in, one, in his commentary on Luke talks about a first century Jewish custom that I'm going to share with you and come back to in just a minute. But if a Jewish boy takes his inheritance early, if he would have been given it, been given money, and he would have taken it into Gentile land and lost it, lost all of these Jewish resources in Gentile company that would have been part of Israel. And then if that boy ever decided to come home, there would have been a ceremony that he would have had to enter into that would not have been pleasant or pretty. It would have been a ceremony to basically let that boy know when he comes home, you've hurt us, you've broken trust with us. So for several days, you have to see this father as he's thinking about selling off this and how much of this he's got to sell off. It's weighing heavy on his mind. He's probably hoping, he's praying, he's thinking, is my son going to come to his senses? Is there something that's going to click in his mind that he realizes he needs the relationship. He needs home. He needs family. He needs this village because he really can't make it on his own. And he's hoping and thinking, will he change his mind? But guess what? Son does it. The day cannot come soon enough, and when he has cash on hand, he, wa- uh, he runs to a distant country. Well, there's a quick lesson here about rebellion, isn't there? See, everything that looks good and shiny and bright, this boy saw it, and he could have been self-indulgent. He could have taken on all the things that looked desirable and pleasure and satisfying to him. And we know the song, All That Glitters Is Gold. Well, it's not true. Not all that glitters is gold. Because the money and the resources begin to run out on him. How many of us have been rebellion against God? Tim Keller writes, he says... How all of us will put something in the center of our lives and how Jesus raises the question of what the center of that life will be. What are you going to put there? He says, remember this. If you don't live for Jesus, you'll live for something else. If you live for a career and you don't do well, that career will punish you all the days of your life because you'll feel like a failure. If you simply live for your children, they don't turn out right. You could be absolutely in torment because you feel worthless as a person and a parent. Your career cannot die for your sins. Your, career, your kids cannot die for your sins to give you value. Everybody has to live for something. Whatever that something is becomes the Lord and center of your life, whether you think of it that way or not. Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, can ultimately fulfill you. And if you fail him, guess what? He'll still forgive you eternally. See, Jesus is bringing this. He's, he's just going deep on this subject with these people. And Jesus says a famine hits. Now, he doesn't say famine. He says a great famine. Now, you have to understand that back in this day, when a great famine struck, there was no outside communication to this world. There was no world vision to call and to bring in supplies. You couldn't just call on another nation to bring in stuff. People would literally die. Animals would die. They would be in the street. There would be corpses. They would literally have nothing. The only people that could help them would have been their friends and their family and whatever resources they might have. So this is desperate, deep weeds for this young 
boy. And even if you could hear about it, the transportation systems were so minimal. There was little hope and help in this community outside of family and friends. But we see that when the famine hits, this great famine hits, we don't see the boy still wants to go home. He doesn't really want to go home until he's almost on the brink, on the precipice of death. Why? You know why? Because he knows what's coming when he goes home. As I said earlier, Ken Bailey writes about this in his commentary on Luke. When a Jewish boy squandered his inheritance among the Gentiles, if he even dared to return home, the entire community, the village would gather around in a very dramatic scene. And they would take a pot. And they would bring the boy. I don't know what kind of pot it was. Probably something from the family's home. They would take a pot and they would do this to symbolize how destructive his life had been. They'd break it before him declaring, this is the brokenness you've caused. You've broken trust with us. You've broken trust with yourself. You've broken trust with your community. You've broken the heart of your father and you've caused irreparable damage. And this pot would simply, would simply be a symbol of the brokenness of his life and the brokenness that he brought to the family and that community. And they would drop it. And they'd break it in front of him. And they would basically say, you are not family. You are not welcome here. You are cut off. See, this ceremony was called the kezaza. It was the Hebrew for the cutting off. You're not part of us. Can you say that word, kizaza? Say it with me, kizaza. Yeah, it's got kind of a nice little ring to it, but it's got a really bad intonation, doesn't it? You're cut off. See, this is sad. I don't know about you, but probably there's some of us here that have felt this kind of brokenness. And this boy knew that when he returned, this would be waiting for him. So he stays away and lives in pain and brokenness and in this famine situation because he doesn't want to have to go face this humiliating ceremony. Well, there's a quick lesson here, too, about spiritual maturity, isn't there? When he left, you see the immaturity. When he leaves, he says, and he focuses on his father saying, give me the goods. His focus is on what I'm getting. That's a sign of immaturity, when it's all about us, when it's all about you, when it's all about what you're going to get. That's a real sign of spiritual immaturity. Gimme, gimme, gimme. But finally, it says that he comes to his senses. He comes to the end of himself. And he says, I'd be better off at home being a slave than dying. So he, makes, he comes to the, his right mind. And he starts preparing how he's going to go home. And what does he say? When he comes to his father, he says his whole attitude changes from his focus on what I'm getting to now he says what I'm becoming. Father, make me a servant. Just, just let me be one of your servants. And see, loved ones, that's a great sign of spiritual maturity as well. You're growing. You're moving forward when you can come to a place like this. And the focus isn't on what you're going to get. But you begin to go, you know something? Just just make me a servant. I'll do what needs to be done. 
and you see some growth in this person. Now, as this boy is heading home, he sees this village. Just think of it. He's, he, he sees the village. He's starving. He's dirty. He's filthy. He's broken. He's hurt. He's humiliated. And often on the horizon, he begins to see the village. But the closer he gets, the bigger the knot gets in his stomach because he knows what's coming. We understand in rebellion, don't we? There's always pain. There's always consequences. There's always loss. There's loss. There's always humiliation that hopefully leads us to humility that's associated with rebellion. Loved ones, that's never God's intention for us. But the amazing thing about this loving God is he won't stop you. He'll give you roadblocks. He'll give you some obstacles. He'll probably put people in your life that will speak into your life. But ultimately, he didn't stop us. He just says, well, it's either your way or my way, and you're going to choose. And how many of us have felt the effects of that brokenness and that rebellion? But the story, all of Luke chapter 15, teaches us a couple of things. The first two stories teaches about there's a time to look and to seek out the lost and the rebel. The last story teaches there's a time to sit back and wait. Just wait for that person to hit bottom, come to their senses, because sometimes that's the only way some people can learn and come to maturity. And that's the love of God. Sometimes that has to be the love of parents too, isn't it? Where you just say, go make your own bed. I love you, but make your own bed. And we see the powerful compassion of the Father being lived out through this story. But this son, he's coming toward the village. He's got this growing knot in his gut, but there's something he doesn't consider. In the village at his home is this old, heartbroken man who, by inference of the Scripture, he seems to come out very regularly, this heartbroken father looking out over the horizon for what? His son. His son. Hoping this might be the day. Is this the day that maybe I'm going to get to see my son return from a distance coming home? You ever notice there's people that when you see them walk, it's a very distinct walk? If I could show you pictures, I could, uh, just a couple that come to mind. If I were to show you John Wayne, you didn't see, you just saw him from the waist down. A lot of you'd recognize, oh, that's John Wayne. If I showed you Clint Eastwood, how he walks, he's got a very distinct walk. You could pick him out. And, it, it, and it's really interesting. The other day, I was doing something uh, when we were on holiday, and, and, and we were, uh, we had separated for a while, and I was walking to Trina, and she says, you know something, I, I wasn't even looking up above. I was just looking at your legs, and I could tell that was you coming. And it's really true, isn't it? When you really know somebody well, you can tell their gait, their walk. So this father, he saw this boy take his first steps. And all of a sudden, on this day, this special day, this father, he goes out and he looks and the scripture says, Jesus says in this, in this poignant moment, he says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And he was, as soon as he saw him, what was he filled with? Not anger. Compassion. And it says he ran to his son. 
they got to know when Jesus tells this part of the story to this group of people, they listen and they're moved because he is saying something powerful about the heart and the character of this wonderful God. He says, the father ran. Now again, let's, let's rewind the tape 2,000 years. Luke, he was a doctor, so he's writing here with, with very clear defined detail and he chooses his words carefully. You have to understand that in, in the Middle East, the patriarch of the family, he would, have met, he would have been dignified. He would have had authority. And you know that people like that, they don't just run around. They would have been dressed. He was dressed in ornate robes. He would have been very dignified. He would have been together. Men of this stature don't run. They walk. Because they've got authority. And first of all, it would have been really hard to run as an older man, but it would have been even harder to run because he had these robes on. And in that culture, it would not have been the thing that an old man would have shown his legs. Maybe a child, but not an old man. Maybe a slave, but not an old man. But what does this guy do? He sees his son. His heart is so moved with compassion. He rolls up. He, he tucks in his robes. And, 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 the, and, and the words there that, that Luke uses, it's as if he goes on a dash and a sprint. There is not a dignified bone in his body right now. He runs to his son. There's a couple lessons here, I think, about contagious Christianity for you, for me, for the church. Because let's look, there's three marks of this father that are so important. This father runs. Why? I think the first reason is, is because of commitment. He's thinking about this broken boy. Get this. Hear this. This is what this father is thinking. If this village gets to my boy first, it will mean kezaza. They will grab him and they will begin the process of this ceremony. They will move into this kazaza and there will be more brokenness, more shame, more humiliation. And, and, and that might be the thing that pushes my boy back. That might crush his heart, break his spirit, and I might lose him forever. I can't let that happen. Because this would have been a surprise to these listeners. They would have wondered, why would this man be undignified to run toward his son? And Jesus is explaining, because I am committed to my boy, just like he's committed to you sinners, you sinners, and you religious sinners. I have to get to him before anyone else first gets to my boy. So the father tucks in, picks up his robes, robes and he starts running. And of all the twists in this powerful short story that has amazed and touched people for 2,000 years, this is what's most unexpected. This father feels compassion. You know what this father does in his compassion? He takes on the humiliation that would have fallen on that prodigal boy. That father runs because his commitment never stopped loving that boy, no matter how far that boy had gone. And guess what? 
that boy never stopped needing his father no matter how far he ran away. This is a parable, friends, of the running father who was committed to his sons. It's really not about the prodigal. This is about a running father who still runs today to catch us, to give compassion to us. See, Jesus is showing God is so filled with compassion for you that no matter what distant country you've gone to, how far you've gone, where you've been, all it takes is one step toward him, and he picks up his robes, and he'll come sprinting towards you. God is running to every rebellious child in this world, past, present, and future. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary on Luke, puts it this way. He says, Jesus attempted to underscore God's passion to seek and to save the lost and the outcast. He would not be diverted from this paramount activity. Jesus believed he needed to underscore this priority because the scribes and the Pharisees grumbled and muttered about how much time he spent with tax collectors and sinners instead of retreating and appeasing those religious people and the wishes of the religious leaders. He reminded everyone of priority one. Compassion toward people and the lost. So the father gets to this boy who starts his speech. He's saying about how he's going to begin to earn his way back into the family plan. And the father just simply shuts him down, throws his arms around this boy, embraces him, kisses him, probably cries over him. I hear me. Let's go back 2,000 years. Where's this boy been? He has been with the pigs. It says a distant country. So he's been with the pigs. They didn't, he probably didn't, he ran out of money, so he can't stop at the local Motel 6 and get cleaned up for this homecoming. He's broken. He's dirty. He's smelly. Can I tell you how, have you ever raised pigs? Anybody ever here raised pigs? A couple of you? Yeah. Good. Let me tell you about pigs. I raised three of them for the slaughter. And uh, this was back uh, when I started pioneering and, and money was really tight. So this guy that I was working with, he said, let's get three pigs. So we got three baby piglets. And he was outside. He lived in a campo outside of Lodi. And so we're raising these pigs. Made a pen. And, and they're filthy. They are dirty animals. And I have to go clean the pen with him. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of a city slicker. I didn't do a lot of farm stuff growing up. And these things, we and I, I got to name them, so I named one uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And uh, so we identified it because that's what they were going to be. And, and so I can't remember how many months it was, but it was less than a year. And it was probably in the spring that we got these guys or sometime. And so in the summer, you know, you know, it's like over in the valley. Man, it's just stinking hot and dirty. And so I go over to his house, and I got to shovel the stuff and... And, and it's, it's really gross because it smells and there's green mud all over the place and there's maggots and there's food and you got to clean it all out and they're eating it. And, you know, and, and you get in the pen and, uh, and, and, and one time they're running around and they got bigger and they knocked me down and I fell in this stuff, the, the slop and the poop and the mud. And, and I mean, it's like instantly it was caked on. It just stunk. I come home. I tried to clean it off and Trina goes, what in the, you know, world happened? What stinks? I, you know, by then I was pretty clean, but she could still tell it. They're dirty. 
So think of this boy. Not only has he been with the pigs for who knows how long, he can't stop at the local Motel 6 to get cleaned up, and it says he's been walking for many, many days probably. Distant journey. And you know what the climate is in the Middle East. What does his dad do? He meets it. He doesn't bring a towel. He doesn't bring a hose. He brings his arms. And he grabs it. And he embraces it. And he loves it. And he welcomes it. Can you do that? I gave a challenge last week about entering a no-complaining zone for at least one day. I loved it. I couldn't believe how many people, boy, they saw me on Monday or texted me, or, oh, man, hey, Pastor, I'm doing this no-complaining thing. Boy, it's great. I didn't realize how hard it would be. That's why I said that's, how, that's why you know how much you need Jesus every day. And I loved hearing that. People sent me some emails, really funny, cute ones about what, what they did. How about if I send out another challenge? How about a compassion challenge this week? What if for this week, maybe a couple of days or whatever you can, what if I challenge you to you offer compassion to somebody who does not deserve it? What if I challenge you to offer somebody compassion who you don't want to offer compassion to because that person has mistreated you, said something bad to you, taken advantage of you, but in place of that, you do what Romans 12 says, and as much as it's up to you to be at peace with somebody, you're at peace with them because you offer them compassion. I'm not saying kiss up to them, but you simply, if there's an opportunity to offer compassion, if God brings somebody in your view that you would n- never stop to say something to or give something to, maybe this is the week you say, you know something? I want to be like my I want to enlarge my heart for compassion. How many would be up for a challenge like that? I want to challenge you this week. Not many of us. I hope more of you will do it. This one wasn't a rhetorical. Some of you probably weren't here last week. How many would do it this week? Will you say, God, I, I, I need to grow compassion. Because we're going to do either, I'm not sure if it's going to be the fall or the winter, but our church is going to have, we're going to do a week and a weekend of compassion. Where we're going to set ourselves to use that as kind of a launching pad to grow our compassion for our community. We do a lot of good things, but I think we need to ramp up our compassionate awareness. And I told you a couple of weeks ago that God's been speaking to me about some areas that I'm unpacking personally and some of those things maybe for our church. It was powerful last week after the first service. I had two people run up to me and say, Pastor, remember when you said that last week? God's been speaking to me about two areas where God wants to ramp up the compassion in their life. And I said, ah, that's God. That's God's to us. So tomorrow, this week, that's my challenge. Email me. Let me know. Text me. Just say, hey, it's good. You'll be amazed at how your heart will grow as it's not just about knowing Jesus, but it's about doing the things that Jesus does. Now notice the next thing that happens here is Celebration. Because his compassion, the compassion of the father, leads to another surprise that is also needed by the church. The father says this, bring me out my best robe. Bring the best ring, man, and the finest shoes. Go kill the best calf, the biggest one that we got. We're going to celebrate. There's not going to be a kazaza here. 
We're going to celebrate. See, brokenness does not get the last word when Christ's followers are following Jesus and they're involved. Brokenness doesn't get the last word. And he says that not for my boy. You know what? There's going to be music. There's going to be dancing. There's going to be feasting. There's going to be a party because my son was lost. Now he's found. My son was dead. Now he's alive. I love what C.S. Lewis said. Joy is the serious business of heaven. You can't read this passage without seeing joy celebration, lost, found. That's what we're about. Because that's what the Father is about. That's what Jesus is drilling deep on. So we see here a lesson about God's grace. This is a simple message, loved one. Very simple. You know what it is? This is about coming home. It's never too late to go home. Will you come home? Maybe some of you have been in a far country. You've made some pretty bad choices. Maybe you've been selfish. Maybe you've slept around, cheated, stolen, hurt innocent people, hurt yourself. Ultimately, all of these hurt God. You've been involved in a lifestyle that you would that might make people in here blush if they were to know. Can I tell you something? You can come home or you can choose to stay in the far country. And, and, and just, I know you can be in this room and still be in the far country. Sometimes people go to church for years and they're involved in secret lifestyles and things in their life that ends up crushing others and hurting themselves. And they get trapped in it. They want people, they can't come clean because they want people to think like the older brother. You know what, I've got a really sick heart. But I don't want anybody to know it. I'd rather look good than be good. I'd rather look good than feel good. I want to say today, you can come home. Maybe you're the kind of like that older brother we talked about last week. Oh, you're in the home. You're hanging out with the father. And you think things are okay. But the truth is in your heart, there's all this anger and pride and resentment and coldness toward God and people that don't measure up to you. Guess what? You can come home. You can come home today. You can let it go. People often think, oh man, I gotta clean up my act first. I gotta impress God with some good intentions or good works or good deeds. No, you, you just come home to enjoy the embrace and grace of the Father because He's the God that will run to meet you. See, Jesus didn't come and die on the cross for behavior modification. He came and died on the cross for life transformation. He didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And sometimes we forget that. And sometimes we get it inverted and reversed and we deal with the exterior like the older brother and forget to allow Jesus to deal with the heart and to change us from the inside out. Because the things that we're talking about today with the Father can only happen in your life, in my life, in the church's life until there's a something of transformation going, taking place beyond behavior modification. 
behavior modification simply reach to become like an older brother. Life transformation will turn you into Jesus' heart and life. And the church, my ones, can never, we can never forget that. Jesus Christ came and died in our place. He paid for our sin. Nobody earns their way home. You come through this powerful, gracious gate of grace. It's not that you try to earn and deserve his grace because as soon as you try and do that, guess what happens? You become like the older brother. I'm good. I deserve this. What in the world is happening? So Jesus tells this story so they could, so I can, so you can have this tiny, precious, powerful glimpse of what a good God God is and how much he loves you. And if you're like the younger brother that's made bad choices, you messed up big time, maybe you're guilt-ridden, maybe you have great regrets, the Father says, you know what, you can just simply come home today and I'm going to meet you. There will be no kazaza. This is not your life. You may feel like it is. You may feel like it's just shards of brokenness, but guess what? It doesn't have to be. Or maybe you're like the older brother with pride. And while you're on the inside, you're just looking good. But there's a lot of junk on the inside. Guess what? You've been missing the celebration, haven't you? There's no joy in this thing called your walk with God. Why? Because you're an older brother. But guess what? You can come home today. And maybe for some of us, a good way to start is like that boy started. Father, I, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm tired of carrying around shame, guilt, resentments. I'm tired of pretending that everything's good and all right out here when inside I, I, I don't feel it. There's a bankrupt. I have these attitudes, thoughts. Will you just wash away my sin and heal my brokenness? Make me your son and daughter. I love to get so many young parents moms and daddies in our church staff. I love to hear their stories, how they want to, their children to know so much that they love them and how much they're loved. Don't you wonder how, when, and how much really sinks into a child's heart? When they really know their love. When, when our youngest son, Jamie, was, I don't know, he's probably four or five years old, we moved to Manteca, and you know the WWF World Wrestling Federation or whatever it was called back then, you know, the body slams and you see the guys poking eyes and slamming and doing really just crazy mean stuff. It was all fake. But for a four or five-year-old, they don't necessarily pick up on that. So, you know, with my boys, we would have these big wrestling matches. And one time I was having a wrestling match with Jamie in our living room. We're wrestling away and I'm body slamming them as only a big dad can do with a little kid, you know, and beating them up and, you know, just messing with them. And all of a sudden, we're looking at each other, and we're getting ready for this next move. I'm on my knees, and he's on his feet. And all of a sudden, he walks up to me, and he takes his fingers, and he pokes me in the eye. <laughs> That's not very funny. <laughs> because, honest to goodness, we used to have this thing, how much do you love me, Dad? And I'd say, oh, boy, this much, or this much, or this much. And... Uh, and so after he poked me in the eye, I mean, it floored me. As a matter of fact, I actually had to go to the hospital. They had to put some antiseptic stuff in it, and I had to wear a patch, like, for a week. 
But after he does that, and he realizes very quickly something's going on. You've got Jamie's the younger child, so he's the one, the limelight, everything's funny. And he goes, Daddy, Daddy, I love you. I, I love you this much. How much do you love me? And I looked at him, and I go about this much. And uh, um, not, not really, I don't think I did that. Actually, I couldn't do anything because I had my hand over my eyes. But uh, uh, it, it was a shock, and literally I had to go to the hospital and get a patch on. And... Um, uh, you know, th- those are those hard dad moments, but I love my kids. And I think Jesus is kind of painting it here. He says, to these people, if, if you want to know how much the Father really loves you, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus on the cross when he stretched out his hands with this. And he cried out to his Father, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? That's how you'll know how much the Father loves you. You see, Jesus was rejected by his Father so that we could be accepted by the Father. On the cross, Jesus becomes our kazaza, the broken one, the cut off one. And see, why do I tell you this? Because I want you to know you can come home whether you're a prodigal, whether you're an older son, whether you've been with God will forgive your sin, and there's another promise. Jesus said it this way in the Gospel of John. He said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and he will come to them and make our home, our home in them. Home, home. Few things give the warmth than the word home. See, the hunger for home that we have is not a hunger for this earth that it can fill. It's a hunger to be forgiven, to experience the love of God and the ultimate home that we're going to get to experience. And loved ones, never forget, this life is simply preparation for that life, the ultimate homecoming. Everything in this church while there, you may not see it, but it ultimately the foundation of it is simply this, the classes, the activities, the service, is so that sin-wrecked people can come to Jesus and find hope. This Jesus is God who loves them. He's in the business of forgiving sins, of taking the broken shards, listen, of every one of our lives, every one of our lives, and saying, you don't have to live like a broken person. I can heal you. You can't be a prodigal. You can't be an older brother. You just got to come. And I'll, I'll one, one step and I'm there. But you got to take a step. I, I want to encourage you. I think there's something uh, about public things sometimes. Sometimes we try and make our relationship with Christ just a little too private. And... Um, the father knew what would happen to his son. That's why he met him and said, I'm not going to let that happen. May we leave and be the church that lives out these words. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. That is true. But we had to celebrate. We had to be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. That's why we exist now. May the Lord bless you and keep you.
have a good day. Walk in the fullness of Christ. Amen.